I don't know what you feel about the thought that Jesus looks directly into your heart today. Because the passage is very clear that he sees our hearts. And we can have two reactions to that. And probably, if we're honest, we have both. We're glad that he sees what we're going through. We're glad that he sees our endurance, as the passage says. We're glad that he sees that we've held on in troubled times, as the church in Thyatira have. But there's another side, the Jezebel side, that says, I wish you didn't see that. I wish you didn't see that double-mindedness in, in us. And the reality is that as we look at this letter, the people of Thyatira would have been surprised that they even got a letter. All right, Of all the seven churches, they were the smallest, the least well-known, the least, if you like, successful in one sense. But they were faithful and faith-filled in many, many ways, particularly in the area of grace, mercy and love. They were full of love. And the good news was they were going from strength to strength. That actually their first works were exceeded again and again and again by the next ones. That they were flourishing. And our heart here at Riverside is exactly that. That actually across the generations we will become more passionate about Jesus. That we will pass on this little light of mine. This, this burning passion that we have for Jesus on and on and on to the next generation and the next and the next and we're seeing that already we're seeing that particularly in our youth at the moment that they're catching the flame and passing it on to their peers and the truth of Jesus and the Christians in ancient Thyatira um, they were very diligent in mercy very diligent in service and uh, they actually had quite a lot, as, as Nathaniel said a few weeks ago, they were very much involved in merchandise, in crafts, and even this picture of Jesus in burnished bronze and flaming fire would have resonated with them. There would have been a local resonance for them. And I wonder, as we think of the church in Thyatira, and as we think of our own lives, what does it mean that God sees us? In the Old Testament, one of the names of God is El Elriah, which means the God who sees us in, in Haggai. And as he sees us, he sees beauty. And he wants to say to us today, I believe, well done for hanging on. As some of you know, I've been uh, touring in Scotland for the uh, last uh, week and touring churches there. And what has been fascinating is the size of the church never really represents the passion within it. <laughs> in fact, there was one that actually uh, outside Aberdeen started meeting in a hut and just started praying, just praying and praying for revival, particularly among the young people in a rough area of Aberdeen and they were slightly mocked initially for meeting in this hut but actually they were asked if they wanted to buy the land around the hut and the guy cheekily said well we'll buy it for a pound and uh, the council came back to them after about a year of messing around and said actually we'll give you the land and they got the land and they built on it and guess when they built they built in the lockdown with the police supervising them. And the whole little gathering actually built the church physically. And it was so wonderful to see their passion, the work that they were doing with addiction, the work that they're doing amongst young people, the work that they're doing about food poverty, the service, but also the zeal, the passion that they have. 
And in this letter, as with all the letters, we have an encouragement, then a challenge, and then the victory of Jesus. So sit tight. Don't feel condemned, even though I've given Michelle the challenging bit to do. That's very kind of me, isn't it? Um, About Jezebel. But actually, in the end, there is victory. There is that demolishing, that pottery being brushed, that, that absolute victory over evil in our lives. Before I hand over to Michelle, I wanted to just share with you one story. Uh, that really touched me from our tour. Uh, I was touring with an actress who is a phenomenal actress. She's one of the most, I think, accomplished I've come across. She was also our director for the tour. And she has a dream to really go all out for Jesus within the arts. No doubt about that. And she's talented enough for that. And she's dreamt of Netflix. She's got close. She's got down to the last two couple of times, but she's always just missed it. And then when we were away last week, she got the letter to say from her agent that she was offered a part in a Paramount film. And if you know the industry, that was, okay, this is it, girl. But it asked for some semi-nudity and it asked for sexual simulation in one scene. And so she met with us and she said, almost look, I kind of want you to say it's okay, but I kind of know that you're going to say it's not. But seeing her wrestling and crying and actually saying, do I do this or not? She said, I sort of know that I couldn't look Jesus in the eye if I did it. And she said, I already really know the answer, but I just need you to help me get there. And she cried. We prayed. She said to her agent, no, knowing that her agent could well drop her because it's literally the biggest thing she'd been offered. And just this week, I heard from her, and I feel quite emotional about it because she has been offered a phenomenal job as a director on a new play, um, quite unrelated. But God has honoured the fact that she has said no to her Jezebel, if you like, no to that voice that might tempt her. Yes to Jesus every time. And I think that's a beautiful encouragement to me. I found it hugely humbling when I heard from her this week. So even as Michelle comes and looks at some of our challenges, let's remember that we can't outgive God in his grace, in his mercy. He wants to lavish his mercy and his great reward on us. But I am thrilled to have Michelle partnering with me today. She's one of our trainees who serve faithfully across our church and one of her gifts is communication and so we're delighted that she's going to share uh, about the next few verses in Revelation. Thanks Judy. Yes uh, Michelle would you like to come and preach? Yes we're on. Revelation. Thanks. Thanks Judy. Um, Now, firstly, I want to say well done, guys, for sticking with this series on Revelation, because this is really challenging stuff. And this letter to Thyatira is no different. Um, So let's just start to unpack the challenge, if we can have the next slide. Um, So it says to the angel in Thyatira, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, Teaching, in her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't know for sure, um, but it's likely that this woman in Thyatira might not actually be called Jezebel, but they are calling her Jezebel as a reference, referring to the Jezebel that we read about in 1 Kings. Um, so to give us a bit of context, uh, let's just re- recap the story of the Jezebel in 1 Kings. So we first hear about Jezebel in 1 Kings 16, when she marries King Ahab. It actually says that King Ahab marrying Jezebel is already sinful nature because she's a Sidonian and a Baal worshipper. 
Now, Jezebel is not the kind of wife to sit back and let her husband take control. She has a huge influence over his actions, and as a result of her influence, he also becomes a Baal worshipper. Now, this is quite a problem because Israel at the time worships Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God that we know and worship. So having a king that worships Baal becomes a bit of a problem and causes quite a division. Now, a lot of things go wrong in this reign um, of Ahab and Jezebel. They do a lot of things that are very questionable. Um, at one point, Elijah comes in, tries to sort things out. He ends up having to flee because Jezebel threatens to kill him. I mean, this is your ultimate Bonnie and Clyde couple. But it all comes to a head uh, when Ahab decides he wants to inherit this vineyard from this guy called Naboth. And uh, the problem with that is that the Lord has forbidden Naboth from giving any of his inheritance to Ahab because he worships Baal. Um, but Jezebel is not the sort of woman to take no for an answer. So she does what any good wife would do in this situation, and she orders to get Naboth killed. Um, so Naboth is now dead, and that means Ahab is now able to seize the land unlawfully. As you can imagine, God's not best pleased. They do eventually reach their untimely death, um, but Ahab is left with something of a reputation. And it says in uh, 1 Kings 21, next slide, um, that there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. So in other words, no king that has ever come before Ahab and no king that ever came after Ahab has ever done anything like as much evil as Ahab. But why? Because he was influenced by this woman, Jezebel. So coming back to the passage, what does that mean for this church in Thyatira? Um, well, it says that they're tolerating this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. It doesn't say that she is a prophetess, but that she calls herself one, which implies that she probably isn't. In fact, she's probably more likely a false prophetess, and her false teachings are misleading the church into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Her influence, just like Jezebel's influence in the Old Testament, her influence, her false teaching are causing people into immorality to create barriers between them and God. So what does this mean for us? How can we apply this to our lives today? Well, like any good preach, I thought I'd give us three key points. And my first point is, let's not be like Jezebel. It says in two different Gospels, Matthew and Mark, that it would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea than for you to cause little ones to fall. I mean, that's pretty dramatic language for the New Testament. But it's a reminder that in God's eyes, causing people to fall, leading people astray, is, especially young people, is, is really not great. And it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever seen on TV and there's a character and they have a moral dilemma to face and they might have like an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, like whispering in their ear. So imagine you've got a character and they're at a pub and they've had a few drinks and they see a £10 note on the floor. And so the angel's going to be whispering, oh, it's a £10 note. Why don't you pick that up, hand it in, go home, have a glass of water in an early night. 
And the devil's going to be like, oh, 10 pounds, go on, pick it up, go on, buy yourself a drink with that. Oh, just one drink, go on, have one more, one more. Don't know why I always do a Cockney accent for the devil. <laughs> don't, ask, don't ask me where that comes from. Um, but, but the truth is, we all have spheres of influence in our lives. Um, and the things we say and the things we do influence the people around us. And the challenge for me here is, in my sphere of influence, how much am I influencing people on the angel side of the spectrum where I'm really building people up and encouraging them and helping them be the best versions of themselves? And how often am I tempted to be a little bit more of a bad influence? It's a challenge. And so that is my first point. How can we be less like Jezebel? Let's not lead people astray. But the letter isn't written to Jezebel. The letter is written to the church, to those who have been led astray. So what are the Jezebels in our life, if you will, the kryptonites, our weaknesses, the things that they might not be major sins or terrible crimes, but if we ask ourselves, does this thing help me in my walk with God, help me, help my light to shine bright, or is it hindering me? Is it holding me back? Is it dimming my light? Um, I've recently started re-watching How I Met Your Mother. Uh, it's um, one of my all-time favorite sitcoms. Any How I Met Your Mother fans in the room? Oh, guys, you are missing out. Go watch it. I tell you, it's so good. Anyway, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I watched this episode called uh, Nothing Good Happens After 2 a.m., and in this episode, uh, this character, Ted, he's in a long-distance relationship. So he's in New York and his girlfriend's in Germany. And he's waiting for her to call him. And he just anticipates that this phone call is going to be the breakup phone call. Um, and he waits by the phone all day for her to phone. And he waits all evening. And it gets to 2 a.m. And she still hasn't phoned. And at this point, what he should probably do is just go to bed. But then... Robin phones, and Robin is the girl, the other side of town that he is basically in love with. And she phones and invites him over. And he gets in the taxi and heads over to her apartment. And as he's in a taxi, he's reminded of his mum's advice that nothing good happens after 2 a.m. And his friends are phoning him saying, just go home, it's not going to end well. And he's like, no, it's fine, I've got it, I'll be fine. And he goes to Robin's apartment, and in the moment, he catches himself lying to her and saying that he'd got the phone call, they'd broken up, and he was single. And then the girlfriend phones, and Robin picks it up. And in that moment, Ted has managed to hurt two people he really cared about. And at the end of the episode, uh, it, it says, well, Ted says, when it's 2 a.m., just go home, because the decisions you make after 2 a.m., are not going to be good decisions. So for Ted, staying up past 2 a.m. is his Jezebel, his kryptonite. And it's not that staying up late is such a terrible crime or sin, but for him, was it going to help him make a good decision or was it going to hinder him in making a good decision? I've got this uh, game on my phone called Matchmasters. Um, uh, um, basically, it's a little bit like Candy Crush, uh, but you're basically in a match. So you have a couple of turns, and then somebody else has a few turns, and at the end, somebody wins. Uh, the problem with this uh, game is that it is really, really addictive. 
and I am completely hooked. So I like to play this game first thing in the morning. Uh, I don't even get out of bed. I wake up, I'm not even out of bed. I've already grabbed my phone and I'm already playing a few matches of Matchmasters. Now there's nothing wrong with that per se, but first thing in the morning before I get ready for work is also the time I set aside to have my quiet time with God and do Lecture 365. Now, I can tell myself, okay, we'll just play a couple of games of Matchmasters and then we'll put the app away and then I'll get out Lecture 365 and, and have my quiet time. But quite frankly, who am I kidding? Because I know this game is addictive and the chances of me being self-disciplined enough to play a couple of games and then put it away, quite unlikely much more likely that I'll play a couple of games and then I'll be completely hooked in and I'll say to myself, just one more game. All right, just one more game. Oh, one more game. And before you know it, it's time to get up, get ready for work. And what's been sacrificed is my time with God. Look, playing a game on my phone isn't a terrible crime. It's not sin. But is it helping me in my walk with Jesus? Or is it hindering me? So just maybe... Matchmasters is my Jezebel, my kryptonite, thing that might be hindering me in my faith, dimming my light rather than helping my light shine bright. What are our Jezebels? What are the things that are dimming us rather than helping us to shine? That was my second point. My third point, if we come back to the scripture, I want to hone in on one word in this passage. Because he's saying to the church, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, this woman is a false prophet and her teachings leading people into immorality. And what are people doing about it? Absolutely nothing. And there's a real challenge in that. Do we want to be a church, a people, that when we see something that doesn't sit right with us or we don't think is biblical or we're not sure about, do we want to be a church that just tolerates it, just lets it happen? Or do we want to be people that are prepared to stand up and challenge and speak out? Because at the end of the day, we all make mistakes. None of us are perfect, least of all me. And we're all, we're all going to mess up sometimes and, and get it wrong. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. Uh, we were just saying in the prayer time before, you know, God is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. There's no shame because uh, Jesus' blood covers everything we've done. It's already finished on the cross. We shouldn't live in shame. But do we want to just stay in that place of making mistakes? Or do we want to grow? Do we want to shine brighter? I don't know about you, but I would much rather someone not tolerate the things that I don't quite get right. I would much rather the people that really know me and that I trust that really love me are prepared to say to me, actually, Michelle, I think you've got a bit of an addiction to Matchmasters. Or, actually, Michelle, I love you, but I think you need to grow in your patience. And they'd be right. Michelle, I love you, but I think you could have been more gentle in the way you spoke to that person today and they'd be right. You know, it's not about judging. I'm not saying, suggesting that we call everyone out every time someone does anything wrong, because that's not helpful. I think you have to be so careful with the language we use, um, that we're not damaging, we're not making people feel rubbish or shameful. 
But I do think it's helpful to find people that can hold us accountable, to find a few people that we know, we trust, that love us, that we give permission to say, actually, I think you need to work on this, or I give you permission to challenge me on my pride, or whatever it is. Because sometimes we have blind spots and we can't always see the things that are dimming our light. So let's walk with each other in love to help our light shine brighter. So there's a very clear challenge from what Michelle has shared. That sense as we think of running our race, perhaps we think of what Paul says in the New Testament, you were running a good race, who cut in on you? that sense that you're Jezebel, whatever that might be, whether it's a small addiction, as Michelle has shared, or something else, that shadow side of all of us that can make us deviate from the passion that we have for Jesus. Um, I'd just reiterate what Michelle said about shame, because shame can hold us captive. And as we were praying, there were many words in the pre-service prayer about not letting shame dictate or have a hold on us. It's biblical for us to actually lay that in front of Jesus, his grace, his mercy, as Jesus is encouraging the church in Thyatira to do, that actually they can throw off whatever hinders them. And the thing about shame, I think it was Olivia when we were praying, talked about the fact that sometimes the enemy can whisper, can you get away with that? You know, and I think back to my friend's dilemma last week, could she get away with it? It was only in one scene. It got better. You know, is there a justification for it? Do we just move our boundaries just a little bit? And that's for us as Riverside as well, as individuals, that we stay true to the word because there is a reward. This passage ends with the great reward of the morning star that is Jesus, the risen Jesus. And although Revelation is a really tough book, it's full of the vision of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the victory that he has. And even though Michelle talked about the enemy to the left or the angel to the right, whichever it was, which I love, the actual reality is that it is actually Jesus over the enemy, defeated, smashed, if you like, those pottery pieces, that he has the victory, that we fight from the victory of Jesus. I am... I'm sure you've been following with great sadness the news about the Titanic and uh, all that's gone on this week. And uh, very, very sad. And uh, I, when I was in Glasgow, was struck by somebody who you don't often hear about who was on the original Titanic, whose name was John Harper. And they call him the quiet hero of the Titanic. Because what he did as the ship went down, there are many different accounts of what he did. He was a reverend aged 37. And as he knew that the ship was sinking, he gave away his life jacket. And people were saying, no, you're a reverend. You're off to do a mission. And he said, I know my destination. I know my great reward. And it's Jesus. And he jumped into the water and saw a man drowning. And his last thing was to pray someone into the kingdom before he died. And that man survived. And he's written a book called The Last Hero. How amazing to be so true of our destination. And if we challenge today, and I hope in a way we are challenged to throw off and to pray into those areas of Jezebel where we might be a temptation to someone, or as Michelle brilliantly said, where we actually might have those temptations ourselves. The great reward is Jesus and his love for you, his all-seeing, all-merciful forgiveness for you is so great 
The reason he loved this church so much is because he saw they had not neglected their zeal. He said actually it was growing and growing and growing. Yet he saw the threat that was coming in on the side, which was Jezebel. And he wanted them to be free of it. And that's the same for you and I today. For us to examine our hearts. This passage says, examine our hearts. Those all-seeing, burning eyes of Jesus in our hearts. He sees us. He loves us. And he wants us to shake off whatever it is that hinders us. 